everyone and welcome to the Shadow Light Podcast. I'm Zoe and join me as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. This week, we're talking about eco-anxiety. I think this is something that has becoming more and more mainstream, like conversations around it are becoming more and more kind of like normalized. I was looking at some stats before we kind of got into this podcast for some research and it, I came across this stat, which was that researchers at the University of Bath conducted a survey of over 10,000 young people aged 16 to 24 from 10 different countries. And they discovered that 60% of the young people felt either very or extremely worried about climate change. And 45% of them reported that climate anxiety affects their daily lives with more than three quarters believing that the future is frightening. Um, that's some very scary stats about young people's mental health. But at the same time, Anxiety has historically served as a function for humans to alert us to danger so that we can take action. So kind of in light of thinking about what anxiety is supposed to do for us, I guess the question that I wanted to ask is, is a little bit of eco-anxiety a good thing? Can it actually mobilise us when we might have been resting on our laurels a little bit? And I don't know the answers to that. So that's why this week I'm so excited to be joined by an expert in this field, someone to kind of answer these questions and reflect on their experience with me. So I'm so excited to welcome Tori Choi. Tori, could you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit more about your work? Yeah, thank you so much, Zoe. It's really, really great to be here. And I have honestly been contending with this topic for a very, very long time. And I think that also kind of reflects sort of the geopolitical disparities of how people experience something like eco-anxiety, which I'll get into in due course. But for context, I'm a climate justice activist. And yeah, as mentioned, a lot of my work revolves around mental health and climate change and has recently culminated in a book that's coming out this summer called It's Not Just You. And maybe you can gather by the title, but there's a lot of like commonality and solidarity, you know, intersectional perspectives that need to be reflected in this conversation that you might be able to derive from the book title. So yeah, I'm really, really excited to be here and share what I know about this topic and, and how we can navigate it in a, in a time where it is mounting and it is a really big thing. I'm really excited to have you on so we can hash out some of this stuff because I feel like I'm looking at your work. You've been talking about the kind of intersection of mental health and the climate crisis from before. It was kind of a normalised thing to talk about, I think. I like I, we, um, Larissa, who's my co-host on this podcast, she's not with us this episode. But she was like, Ray has brought out a song in her latest album, literally called Environmental Anxiety. And that feels like such a like, shift where like the pop the pop tiktok girlies are like talking about environmental anxiety like yeah. it must be really in young people's minds in popular discourse now and i wonder like just in your experience like how's that shift been is it a good thing that we're kind of talking about it a little bit more mm. or is it do you feel like it's a, more overwhelming in a way yeah i think it i think it's ultimately a good thing because for a lot of people they feel like they're struggling in silence i met a lot of young climate activists in particular who have been experiencing eco-anxiety but feel really ashamed of these feelings and when we have people like Ray or when we have magazines like Vogue talking about eco-anxiety, the reality is that some people are going to read that and feel very validated. And so I never want to take that validation away from people. I do argue a lot that eco-anxiety is like a really good entry point to understanding mm -hmm. some of the interconnections between mental health and climate change. But as I write about, it's not the only perspective and it's... Mm. The, it's not exactly the limit of what we can understand. I think this is an invitation to go deeper and really make sense of like not only the geopolitical disparities, the historical disparities here, but what does feeling eco-anxious actually reflect about us, but more importantly, the systems that we live in? 
And so I always try and say like, great, we're talking about it. Let's dig deeper. Like this is mm. fantastic. You, you feel like you can connect to this word, but can we understand it in a way that actually produces a change that prevents it or tackles it at the root at the end of the day? Yeah, so that's so interesting. And I think, yeah, I, there's that, I think there's this understanding that like, potentially also maybe people who are older, like my mum and stuff, like they think eco-anxiety mm. is like, oh God, like every people are like scared about floods and I, or something like, there's something's a bit reductive about the kind mm. of fear that people are actually feeling. And I know yeah. that when I was like a young climate activist and I first heard the term like, yeah, climate anxiety, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't feel anxious about, like, I'm not like anxious about climate change. Yes, I'm kept up at night because I feel completely overwhelmed that the systems that we have to change are completely impossible. And like, yeah, of course, I feel terrible about that. And then I was like, oh, wait, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what eco-anxiety is. So I guess I wanted to throw back at you, like, what are we talking about when we say eco-anxiety? Like, what does that term kind of encapture? Is it a lot more broader than a lot of people think? It's really interesting because so far, there's not one singular definition as to what eco-anxiety means. It's kind of a bit of an umbrella term. Mm. But the definition that I tend to go by is one that's employed by the Climate Psychology Alliance, which recognises it as mental and somatic distress in response to changing planetary systems like climate change and also the dangers that come with it. And the thing that I really like that they emphasise is this somatic distress. It doesn't just manifest in this sort of mental way, like you have very physical reactions to it. And I think that's really helpful. But the one thing that I will also say is across the literature, I've noticed definitions that encapsulate this element of like the future and what's going to happen in the future and fixating on the future and because of that what you find is generally the term can relate to people who have the luxury of only thinking about the future as opposed to people who have lost and continue to lose things as a result of the climate crisis so there's not only that aspect the temporal element which I think can also do a disservice to people who want to understand the longevity of climate trauma, for instance. But also, because there is this element of in the future, what you see are narratives that actually centre the physical manifestations of a dying planet as opposed mm. to the social disparities that exist within climate change. And so I argue that, for instance, people who contend with a lack of political freedom or have to deal with police brutality or, you know, ongoing colonial violence that impact the way that people disproportionately experience the climate crisis and not seen as narratives around eco-anxiety. And I think if we're going to make this a really inclusive and in my eyes, a climate justice issue, we have to include these narratives. We have to go beyond one dimensional descriptions of eco-anxiety as just this, oh, the ice caps are melting people are afraid of that or, oh no, their favourite animal has died or is currently in the process of dying. Like, how can we really go beyond that? It's not to negate the realities of those things, but it's really about making sure that every perspective is at the table and that the perspectives which are on the front lines are those which are also part of the solution because no one's free until everyone's free. So for me, that's that's a really big component to this conversation. I'm so happy that you said that because I think that's one of the criticisms that I've seen of kind of like eco-anxiety and climate anxiety is many people may be familiar with Aisha Sadiqa, who's a climate justice activist, advocate who talks about, and I'm just going to share a quote, says, climate anxiety is not experienced equally among people in the global south and the global north, and neither does it impact the mental health of white people the same way as it does black, brown, and indigenous people. 
just like the physical damage of climate crisis is endured disproportionately by black, indigenous and people of colour. So are the mental health consequences of the climate crisis and kind of spoke about how sometimes Mm. in this discourse around climate anxiety, eco-anxiety, white people's anxieties can actually eclipse attention from the real impacts or the people whose mental health or physical health might be affected another way. And I know you just mentioned, like, Mm. we have to kind of look beyond just eco-anxiety is kind of the thing that we're looking at. It's not just that. So I wondered if you could go into a little bit more depth about what you you meant by that. Yeah, for sure. Ayesha's article is fantastic. And, and just to clarify, there's just some things that I kind of want to amend from her article in that she says that I'm from the UK. I'm actually from Hong Kong. And she mentions that I experience what is called the pre-traumatic stresses of eco-anxiety, but actually my fight or my struggle with regards to political freedom, especially coming from Hong Kong, is one that spans a lot longer than this climate conversation. Mm. And so I just also want to like insert that. And, and the nuance to it is that for me, I think there is a really important point that she raises about how, you know, this sort of white eco-anxiety eclipses that of black and brown people and people who are racialized as not white or those who are on indigenous front lines. And I do agree with it, but I also really want to caution that there are a lot of black and brown and indigenous people who identify as having eco-anxiety. And the reality is that the people who have experienced loss in the past and are experiencing hardships now are also afraid of the future and they have every right to be. And I think we need to stop assuming that it is just solely a white phenomenon because it's not. It's very much a universal thing. And studies that have happened around the globe have shown that young people from also global South countries experience very high levels of eco-anxiety. I think the key here is to understand what eco-anxiety means to them, because it really means something very different to a lot of people. So like I mentioned, physical manifestations, speculative projections are kind of perhaps considered characteristics of those in the global north. But the reality is for a lot of people in the global south, their fears are informed by their lived realities. And that's a very clear distinction that I also want to like point out here. But that being said, When you have people who are fearful of what's going to happen in the future, there's um, an author called Sarah Jacket Ray who argues that potentially it could be operating like white fragility, sucking up all the oxygen in the room when there are people who are experiencing the brunt of this crisis. And I don't want to operate from a mindset of scarcity because I do believe everyone has a right to express how they feel in response to this crisis. It's just about having frank conversations where we go, okay, If we can understand that we're feeling this kind of way, what tools of resilience, and when I argue resilience, it's not a glorification of struggle or saying, oh, people just have to deal with this because that's just the way that things are. It's a sort of what community values and tools can we cultivate so that we can deal with this crisis appropriately and learn how to support one another through this? Because for me, it's all about solidarity. It's not an oppression Olympics. It's really about understanding how can we support each other through this crisis and understand that people who are bearing the brunt of this crisis need our full support. And I also, you know, really want to caution that there are so many different lenses to eco-anxiety here. I think the meaning is very personal to the person in question, but there are dangers, I think, associated with an eco-anxious predisposition that don't get spoken about. And this, for instance, might pertain to them more sort of like anxiousness of the West without understanding climate justice is that there's a fear that I have with a lot of eco-anxiety actually manifesting as this sort of anxiety-informed eco-fascism, which Mm. might seem really far-fetched at first, but you're starting to see it across Europe with people tightening borders, 
more authoritarian regimes coming into power, they might not identify as having eco-anxiety, but these are the same people who are fearful of the future and probably maybe are aware of the climate crisis and feel like it's as a result of black and brown people and overpopulation and all these eco-fascist narratives. And so for me, there's a danger in associating with that type of anxiety. And I think it doesn't get spoken about enough because, you know, yeah, there's sometimes something to be said about how anxiety can be a force for good, but when it manifests into climate doomism and this sort of nihilistic take that everything's doomed to fail, that's not a good thing. And it makes me question who has the luxury of thinking in terms of doomism, who has the luxury in terms of switching off, is anxiety a privilege, is doomism a privilege? I think they're important questions to ask. And so I caution about thinking that, yeah, anxiety is just this good thing, which it can be dangerous. It can be good, but it can also be dangerous. I'm really blown away by the nuance. And I guess that obviously makes sense. You've just written a book about all of this. So you're going to have thought very deeply about the stuff. But I'm really, <laughs> really blown away by the nuance that you brought. And I really appreciate that you saying that you're like, I'm trying to not operate from a scarcity mindset because it's that same scarcity mindset mm. that makes people act in oppressive ways, as you say, like people from an eco-anxious mindset where it's yeah, like us and not them. So I really appreciate you kind of trying right. to hold space for that calmness and care when we have these conversations because people are scared. I think that's mm. that's the whole point, right? People are scared. But I guess, yeah, I want to throw it back. Can we talk a little bit more about like for young people is, do you think the rise in eco-anxiety has kind of happened in parallel with the rise of young people acting more on climate and getting out on the streets? Like what's the, what's the link there? Is it good? Is it bad? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I actually have a whole chapter called It's Not Just Irrational, and it's a play off of the title, arguing that eco-anxiety isn't this irrational thing. It's very rational as a response to something which is irrational happening to our planet. You know, like, if anything, it's a direct reflection of what's happening to the planet reflected in our minds and in our bodies. I would say that, yeah, there is a large part of it which has been spurred on by the rise in the youth climate movement as a sort of Western lexicon, Western kind of conceptualization here. And part of that is also because when you look at the media and when you look at the sort of emergence of the youth climate movement, you can kind of pinpoint it in history to when that first sort of big IPCC mm-hmm. publicity stunt was kind of pulled with the countdown narrative, extinction narrative, we're no longer protesting climate change, it's a climate emergency, climate breakdown, climate crisis. And that narrative I argue in some ways, seems to have promoted sort of awareness as much as it's promoted paralysis. And I think that we really have to do a service to communicate in this crisis faithfully, but also do so in a way that empowers people and doesn't just lead them to feeling really overwhelmed. And I think that, you know, it is unsurprising that if you're going to come to terms with the realities of climate change, which a lot of young people did because they saw all of their peers talking about it, reality is that you're going to experience a whole series of shocks because it is very overwhelming. And it's quite interesting now for me, having been in this movement for quite a long time, and I'm not saying I've made peace with a lot of things. I just think I've cultivated forms of resilience that allow me to deal with some of these challenges versus people that are really new to the climate conversation. The sort of emotional capacity to hold space for these realities is very stark. And so For me, I see, okay, if you're kind of new to this conversation, I can understand why you're acting in a way that is really Mm eco-anxious. But I'd also want to reassure that there's a way that we can use this to cultivate methods to deal with it. 
And these methods are not about erasing these feelings. They're not about shutting them down and they're not about trying to just put a band-aid over a wound that's very deep. It's actually about getting to the source and acting radically, which comes from the Latin meaning root. And I think that acting radically is what is our best chance of survival in terms of, you know, actually addressing this, but also thinking about community-centered practice. I think far too often it's framed as an individual failing, but it's not an individual failing, it's a systemic failing. And we are a direct reflection of what's happening to the world. Oh my God, I already have like 50 questions just from that in and of itself. But I feel like this is a really good time <laughs> for you to tell us more about your book, because this is what it's all about, right? It's about moving yeah. through this space. So tell me, when did you start writing it? What's the book about? And, and when's it coming out? And what should we know? So it's called It's Not Just You. And the way that it's kind of framed is it has four pillars which are four different meanings of It's Not Just You. And I started writing it two and a half years ago and I delayed publication so many times because guess what? Mental health. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's a real testament to writing something about something so personal as well. And yeah, it's defined by four different pillars. The first one is this testament to, okay, it's not just you. You're not alone. Like we all struggle and those shared struggles can inform how we move forward and show up for one another. And I think the way that the book is positioned eases people gently in. It's very much about mental health and climate change from a climate justice perspective. And I feel like by easing people in, it's for people who are at that stage of, okay, I ascribe to being eco-anxious, but what's more to the conversation? What can I learn? And so from you're not alone, it's very validating. This is a very normal response to abnormal circumstances. Go straight into, okay, but it's not just you. Like, we have to appreciate intersectionality here. We have to appreciate what climate justice stands for. And then I delve into, okay, it's not just the future. And it's not just carbon emissions that people are afraid of. Like, what does climate injustice actually look like? What are the social injustices that underpin it? What does climate change mean to different communities? Because you can't just be anxious about the climate. Like, what does that actually mean to different people? And so I've interviewed lots of different change makers and activists from around the world and use that to inform the perspectives. And then the third is essentially this. It's not just you. Like, it's not your fault. There are systems in place. And so I actually delve a bit deeper and a bit broader as well by looking at neoliberal capitalism and how it's actually created a mental health crisis and how we can't separate that mental health crisis from everything that's happening with climate change. And then I also delve into the sort of knowledge systems that govern the world, sort of white, heteropatriarchal, dominant systems that have once and still see us as separate from nature, these things that have tried to dismantle what we call entangling mindsets that employed by indigenous and black and brown communities that saw themselves as part of nature and understand that what if we're not just experiencing this eco-anxiety where eco actually comes from the Greek meaning home, Mm. what we're actually experiencing is a physical, mental and spiritual separation from ourselves and from what we call home. If you commodify nature to a certain degree, you're no longer going to see yourself as part of nature. And so how surprising is it that people are experiencing so many mental health problems when this society that we live in is individualizing us, separating us from our very homes and our very communities and what it means to be human. And so that for me is like part of the system change conversation. Like we have Mm -hmm. to rectify not only the socioeconomic system, but this is a mental system as well. It's a knowledge system that we believe fully with our whole chest because we have been born into this world. And so 
I really try and look at mental health as a whole. And, you know, from my perspective, as someone who's Chinese, I talk about the experience of using traditional Chinese medicine and compare it to Western psychiatry, where, you know, Western psychiatry operates on the mind, which is as a result of actually a lot of Western science and Descartes once bartering with the church and saying, no, no, the soul and the body are separate. And he used that as a reason so that he could do medical dissections. And lo and behold, Western science then believed that mind and body were separate. But in Chinese traditional medicine, we see everything as complex wholes. Our bodies and minds are one whole holistic unit. And we see changes in our bodies as reflections of the metaphysical universe. And so how absurd would it be for us to actually say, hang on a second, we need to actually go back to these roots, these cultures that have been erased and realize that they hold the key to our success. They hold the key, the solutions almost. And so the systems change of it's not just you is is a really important one. And it, it really focuses on those aspects. And as I mentioned, the individualism imbued by neoliberal capitalism, which tells us that, you know, if you're mentally ill, that's a fault of yourself. If you're mentally ill, that's because you're not working hard enough. You know, it's all about meritocracy. If you simply pull your bootstraps up and get stuff done and it's like, hang on a second. That's not how humans work. That's a very particular type of knowledge system that has been built off of our separation from nature and wants to see us as commodities and consumers as opposed to people. So that's a really important part of system change conversations. And, And from that, I also talk a lot about the commodification of care. Because with, you know, this belief of capitalist realism, that capitalism is the only viable system, the way in which the solutions to our distress, whether it be eco-anxiety, depression, anxiety, all of these things, the position that capitalism has come up with is, oh, well, here's some commodified care, self-care girly, like it girl, all this kind of the stuff you're seeing online, the, oh, you're just mentally unwell because you can't afford to do this, that and the other. And it's insidious because it it really positions all of these experiences as a personal failing as opposed to a systemic failing. So I'm really cautious of people saying buy this to cure this or as someone who's really interested in psychedelics as a healing tool, I'm really cautious of this renaissance in psychedelic usage because it's essentially telling people it's the cure to mental health problems. It's It's the one size fits all. And that for me is still a capitalistic trope that we're seeing. And, you know, these plant substances and fungal substances have been used by indigenous cultures and traditional cultures for so long, and they've never been seen as a commodified thing. They've been a community healing practice. So neoliberal capitalism, getting its tendrils into the psychedelic realms and legalizing it for commercial usage isn't going to save the planet. And so I'm really like cautious of that and and communicate that. And then the final tenet of it's not just you is community care community is what will save us. It's basically dedicated to undoing scarce mindsets, learning about the way that care can be multifarious, challenging the heteronormative, patriarchal, white supremacist values of care that see biological families as the only family unit. Like, what does family actually mean? What does kinship actually mean? How can we reroute ourselves back towards community as a means to tackling a crisis of this scale? And then also tackling it from the perspective of the climate justice movement. Like, how have we fallen prey to cults of personality? How have we commodified this movement? How have we acted carceral to each other, saying that we we stand for justice whilst tearing each other down and treating our comrades like they're criminals? I mean, it's just 
not part of the change that I want to see in the world. And so the last few chapters are really actually about the climate justice movement, like how do we get to where we want to be so that eco-anxiety or climate injustice as a whole is, is our merely figments of the past. And then all tied up with a lovely, neat little bow talking about radical imagination and how it is so important for the work that we do. And spiel. That was very ranty. Oh my God. Good spiel though. Oh my God. Like you didn't pass it with this. Like this is, sounds like an incredible, like, I don't know. I think, um, I think I'm, I'm really ready. I'm in the space where I need to read this book because my so I, I was feeling what you were saying. We are in a spiritual crisis. I feel in a spiritual crisis. It feels deep. Oh, it, feel, it feels like, God, we do need to reroute ourselves. And it's so complex and you're right. And I was really thinking about what you were saying there about capitalism proposing like the answers to all these mental health issues being super like mm-hmm. it's just by this new thing. And I think we've really seen that of the rise on a read a piece recently by Rain Fisher Kwan, who was talking about like this rise in, you know, the mm. therapy speak that we all use each other. And it's like, have boundaries here, cut them right. off here, they're toxic there. And it's like right. human relationships are messy. And like, yes, we don't want to harm each other, but therapy this, this western psychology wants to isolate us yeah. so that we never have any difficult relationships you remain in these isolated bubbles so I really feel that what you're saying yeah I really love that you brought that up because it's something that not that's something that I've had to contend with per se but just you know you hear all these conversations about dump them they're not worth your time cut them off this mm. that and the other and I understand why those boundaries are put in place for people who have experienced severe trauma at the hands of very abusive people but for the most part community is about holding each other accountable the climate justice movement it holds you in your darkest days and it also holds you accountable like climate justice is about taking care of one another and you know the number of times there have been people in my life who I'll be really honest, they've hurt me. They really deeply hurt me. And it's taken a lot of introspection, a lot of ego work for me to go, but this isn't just about me. Like what their behavior says is not just about me. It's about, it's not just you, Tori. Like seriously, this is about the collective. This is about community care. This is about realizing that we are all reliant on one another and that this crisis isn't going to solve itself if we just suddenly go, nope, I'm too important for you. I'm too, it's really a lot of it is ego work. And I, I think that that kind of ego work doesn't happen overnight. And it mm. happens with community care and community practice. And I'm really indebted to the community that I'm part of, because that's really formed who I am and shaped who I am as a person. And I don't own any of this knowledge. You know, I don't own any of it. I don't feel like I hold all the answers. It's a continual practice. And it would be a lie for me to say that I'm free from it. But I really see eco-anxiety and all of these mental health struggles that we're experiencing as stuff that we really need to look through through a collectivist lens and things that we need to be kind to each other about because all we have is each other. And I really feel that very deeply. Me too. Me too. And it's messy stuff. I think that's the thing. Holding each other accountable, being held to account can be so embarrassing and so painful at times. And like, I think people are scared to be... Mm in these sometimes being community spaces and be wrong and we all know that in order for us all to get better we have to be wrong sometimes and like that's part of the work but it's hard to be wrong (laughs) it can also be a huge act of love that's Mm. the thing like to show that you care enough about somebody to be like oh I think you can do better and Mm. I had a conversation with a friend of mine Lena Kabaj who I actually interviewed for the book and she's very we're like you know we're on the same brainwave 
about a lot of things and I've learned so much from her. And she said to me, you know, one of the best ways that I talk about accountability is through this act of love, this, you know, this idea that, yes, I love you as a person and I believe that you can do better. And she told me that when she's held people accountable before, it's always been in a very loving way. And she said, you know, I usually say to them, hey, I just want to have a conversation with you because I know who you are as a person and I know what you stand for. But this just this one thing that you did just is this like, how are you feeling? Like, is this something that you believe in? Like, is this who you are? I know you can do better. Like, I know this isn't who you want to be. So how can we get, how can I help you? How can we help each other for you to get there? And seeing it like that was like, oh my gosh, it's like a community accountability process. And I think this idea of, you know, a lot of people talking about council culture and all of this stuff, and I'm not going to comment on the politicization of it too deeply, but I do think that when someone does something that might be harmful, I see that more as a community failing than a personal failing. Because I think we need to start thinking about how we as communities can help each other as opposed to it just being one person doing one wrong thing. It's like, no, we're all responsible to each other. So for me, that's really like shifted the mindset and and makes it feel more loving and less scary as well. You know, it just feels like, oh, yeah, we're showing up to each other. We're trying to do this work together. What you've done, which may have hurt someone else, is also my responsibility. Like, it's my responsibility to make sure we're all kind and, like, really striving towards something that we believe in. That's so, yeah, what an amazing point, because it's that carceral way of thinking, right, isn't it? If we're, and we're so, we're also scared. We're like, oh, they did something wrong. They did something wrong. And it's like, that is a carceral mentality. That is a mentality that is not going to liberate us if we're pointing the finger and blaming. So, like, I, I also really appreciate you sharing that because... I think that's a a shift that it's it's also so deep in there, like that idea of like people doing wrong and punishing them, even within our some ideas around accountability. So it's always good to be turning the lens in on yourself and being like, what am I reinforcing with the way that I think and the way that I act? So I I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in something you mentioned earlier, which was talking about how you've cultivated your own forms of resilience. And I believe we have a mutual friend, Katie Hodgetts who founded the Resilience Project, which I believe you're on the board for. <laughs> um, and they wrote the, the knowledge page for Shadow about eco-anxiety. So check them out. And yeah. Katie, love Katie. She started the Resilience Project. We started mobilizing together in the youth climate movement. And she was just the person going like, this Amazing. is not tenable. This, everybody's burning out. Everyone's been horrible. Yeah. Ever. And yeah. she taught me so much about cultivating personal forms of resilience. But I'd love if you could share some of yours and how you got there and what that looks like for you. Yeah, big shout out to Katie and the amazing work they're doing with the folks over at the Climate Resilience Project because I can't tell you how important these spaces are and it's all about community as well. And I actually interviewed Katie for the book and the insight that she brought was just phenomenal because for me, again, I talked about this need for community-centred practice. This won't be a crisis that we can deal with on our own. And this concept of resilience, and I'm borrowing this from Katie's words here, but she talks about how it's not static and some days she doesn't feel resilient at all. It's not dogmatic. There's no sort of prescriptive way to be resilient. It's personal to you. And I really love that because I think so often we glorify this term, I am resilient. Like, what does that actually mean? You know, what does it mean to be resilient? Is this sometimes weaponized in a way to harm marginalized people who should be more resilient? Oh, you're so resilient for all the things you've gone through. Mm. It's like, actually, I just want to be vulnerable and supported. And I don't want to be resilient. I just want to be happy and healthy. And, you know, I think we need to be so 
mindful and cautious of the way that we ascribe these meanings to people who have very different meanings personal to them. But to me, and again, speaking personally here, this idea of resilience, like Katie isn't static. Some days I don't feel resilient. You know, when we started this podcast, I said, sorry, I'm having a bit of a shit mental health day. And that's okay. Like, it's okay. I recognize this is part of the journey. This is part of whatever, you know, part of being human in this wild time that we live in. And for me, this resilience is very much informed, as I've harked on about community <laughs> practice. And as I said earlier, it's about expanding my notion of care. It's about expanding who I consider kin and who I can care for. It's about recognizing that there is no one way to do the right thing. I think far too often we have these really dogmatic beliefs about, oh, this is what it means to be a climate justice activist. And if you fall prey to only one theory of change and believe that nothing else is possible, you don't diversify the methods with which you can deal with these issues. And I think that in order to be resilient, you have to be adaptable and you have to be flexible with the way that you view a crisis and you have to view it in many different ways and so that you can adapt to you know, how you want to deal with it on a particular day. And I think it's really important to keep an open mind. And I really want to go back to this kinship belief. You know, I take a lot of learnings from queer ecology and queer communities, especially drag culture. I love drag culture so much. I love queer communities. I love the tools for liberation that they have provided for all of us. And one particular sort of incident that I reference is how in drag communities, so many of these people have been ostracized from their biological families, mm -hmm. such that they have chosen families, you know, drag mothers, drag sisters, all of this beautiful sort of intermingling and challenging the heteronormative patriarchal ways of family. And that's the future. Not everyone being a drag queen, but like, that's the future. That's what family is. We need to stop seeing it as we only have a duty to people who are biologically related to us. We have duties to everyone. And, you know, I talk rather tragically, and, and it is tragic because, I mean, so many people have been displaced due to war and climate change. But for instance, with what's happening in Ukraine, which is absolutely tragic, I've seen it be weaponized by the elite of society to say, well, okay, we can care for Ukrainian refugees because they're like us. But black and brown refugees, those who are trying to get into fortress Europe, those who've experienced political turmoil, which has been caused by our very own countries, they're not like us. So therefore, we can't care about them. So what is this scarcity mindset, this racial scarcity mindset that's preventing people from seeing their futures as tied to those who are dispossessed? And so I really ask like, everyone to practice abundant kinship. And that goes beyond humans as well. Like how can we start to see the natural world as a relative to? And again, this is very much tied to indigenous culture. But my friend Vivi, for instance, who's from an indigenous community in Colombia, she's just like, well, we have animism. You know, we see rocks as relatives. We see rivers as sisters. We see the land as a mother. So it makes sense to take care of it because it's a relative, but you guys don't have that. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just like, yeah, it's tragic. What if we start imagining resilience as expanded forms of kinship where we have a duty to one another? That for me is really important. And I feel very, I would say, not happy, but I think that resilience I've cultivated over the years has been as a result of seeing my humanity tied 
to other people as well. That's beautiful. I, what, it was, did you just say abund- practice kinship mm-hmm. with abundance? Like I really mm-hmm. feel that. I love that. That abundance. We need we mm-hmm. need to hold that abundance. And you're so right. What you're saying there about that expansion 100%. of what family means or the scarcity mindset quickly hardens along racial lines and under an eco-fascist kind of like way of it thinking. Really and as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my God, you're yeah. so right. That is terrifying proposition for the future. So we have to actively be resisting that. Family is everything. Yeah. Family is everyone. So true. Yeah, 100%. And that comes with the eco-anxiety mindset that falls along the eco-fascist line mm. as people start going, everyone for themselves. Oh, I'm going to protect mine and nobody else's first and foremost. And mm. we have to resist the scarce mindset because honestly, no one is free until everyone is free. What happens to those on the front lines is the biggest determinant of how we all experience this crisis. And imagine, just imagine if King Charles saw everyone as his family what would that do you know would he would he make us still pay 250 million pounds for his coronation or would he redistribute that because everyone in his family deserves a cut of the pie you know i just i i really do wonder sometimes like just how deep these western knowledge systems are that they seem so impenetrable but you know what would it take to get someone like that to reimagine their relationship and it's funny I mentioned him because he's dubbed the climate king, but um, <laughs> it's just, I, there's there's a lot I can comment on in that, what climate king actually means and how it's the antithesis of climate justice, but spare that for another day. Yeah, climate action means all hailing the climate king, I'm pretty sure, right? Like, it's all just worship King Charles, mm-hmm. he wants to do. And it's an antithesis to it's not just you, because yeah. truly it's about dismantling cults of personality as, you know... Tori's got beef with King Charles. Yeah. Watch <laughs> out. Watch out, King. Yeah, I completely see what you mean. And I, I'm really excited about how it seems like your book is really looking at how these knowledge systems in the West cement this way of thinking. Because I think sometimes it feels so hard to resist if you've been raised in the West to like, like mm. these ideas, these such yeah. rigid ideas of family and like family being held, yeah. blood, blood family being held so deeply is the most important thing and everything else comes second. It's like, right. I really am excited what you're saying about that, pulling from kind of queer ecology and queer spaces to be like, this is how we build out from yeah. there to a movement because I love queer ecology, shout out queer ecology and, and you're so right. Yeah, queer liberation, I mean, is, is the future for me. Like so much of liberation is owed to people who challenge these binaries, these rigid binaries that we've been thrust into and this binary about gender it's seen everywhere mind body nature society you know like queer people are challenging all of that just by living by being authentic so for me that's really important and I I really do feel what you're saying about how you know these these mentalities in the west seem really cemented and it's really hard and how do people who come from those ontologies know how to challenge them authentically and in a way that does a justice to the people who have had to prevail against ongoing genocide and I, I do talk about this in the book that you know for a lot of people and I, I've noticed this in the youth climate justice movement they'll see certain viewpoints as this is indigenous this is not indigenous I'm not indigenous so I can't believe these things mm. and you know I'm not indigenous either and I think I need to caution saying that in case there's you know some assumption that I am which I'm not and the way that I have navigated it is I believe that you do not need to be 
indigenous in order to cultivate your own relationships with the land in a way that means something to you. But we do have to be mindful of the ongoing genocide and erasure of these peoples and these cultures and that our practicing of values that are drawn from these communities and cultures cannot be without understanding the importance of indigenous sovereignty, land back, supporting those on the front lines who have been prevailing against all odds. And I think that's, again, we see a lot of conversations around appropriation and appreciation. So for me, I I always try and root it in, okay, if, if we're going to develop these relationships with the land, there is no relationship with the land unless those who are being erased from their land are given the opportunity to live unapologetically and fully and healthily and thrive. And so I think that's why climate justice is a really important conversation. And unfortunately, I think that with the conversation around mental health, it just it always seems to get left out of the climate justice conversation. Mm. But it's part of it. It's all part of the same beautiful puzzle. I just in hearing you speak, I really feel how much you are holding in like, a, like you've been obviously thinking about how all of these systems are so interconnected and figuring out how to communicate that in a way that you know, is accessible to people. And every time you're talking, like I can see you putting your hand on your chest because you really are feeling that. And I I guess I just <laughs> have to ask, like, how has this process of been writing this book been for you and having to, in a meta way almost, being like talking about mm. mental health and also having to like grapple with this stuff that is overwhelming on a like daily basis. Like how how have you managed to move mm. through that? Like that's that's huge, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I think more than anything, writing something of this scale constantly through the back of my mind is how do I faithfully represent a movement and represent the perspectives of people that I've interviewed for this book in a way that does a service to who they are and what this movement represents without centering myself. And it's been really hard because we live in a a capitalist, neoliberal capitalist system where when you publish a book, your name's right on the bottom of it. I've got so many conversations that are happening at the moment about how best to market it, publicity, mm. blur, blur, blur. And be really honest, Zoe, this stuff makes me so uncomfortable. Mm. And it's not because I don't believe in the words that I've written or that I haven't put a lot of love and energy into it. But for me, I'm just like constantly reflecting on the practice, maybe constantly overthinking, being like, okay, is this faithfully representing what a movement is? Am I taking up too much space? Is this really a project that I've worked on? Or is this a community project? I think it's really important to keep asking myself these questions. And, you know, it's part of the reason why for all the publicity events that I'm doing, I really want to do them in community and make sure that like that is reiterated. Like these ideas are that all of us, like everyone has something to contribute to this. So in that respect, that's kind of been the most challenging part of navigating this, but also the mental health problems that I have are always going to be part of the work. Something beautiful has been born out of them, I hope, but also it has been challenging. And I think this is something that a lot of climate activists will relate to, but the burnout that's just kind of happened over the last two and a half years, I had to take a pause because it's like, why am I writing about dealing with burnout whilst I'm burning out right now? I mean, it's just an antithesis to everything that I want to stand for. So I slowed down and really took time away and I felt like that that made the book more of a testament to everything that I stand for, which is nice. And yeah, it took me a long time because it's a big topic. And I was speaking to my book editor 
who actually left halfway through because she got a new job at Penguin. And she was just amazing. She was so, so great. She's actually one of my closest friends now. And I, I said to her, I was like, Kaya, I think I bit off more than I could chew writing this. And she's just like, yeah, you definitely did. I was really worried when we first started working on this. I was like, is this going to be realized? Is this going to... And she's like, I'm so proud of you because you managed to do something that seemed impossible. And I was like, I don't know how I did it. Honestly, <laughs> it's just crazy thinking about it. So that's the sentiment that I've kind of walked away from. I'm just like, I don't know what I did the last two and a half years, but somehow out of all of this, a book emerged. So that's kind of how I feel about it. It's now you've said all of that, yeah. I'm proud of you too. I'm hard. like beaming. I'm like, go, go, oh, you did it. <laughs> oh like, thank you. That's so kind. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's intense. Mm. And I, I, I know you even mentioned when we were talking earlier. You're like, it's really difficult with the cult of personality and climate, and then you almost having to navigate juggling that space where you're like, I care about the oh. work and what I'm saying, but you have to sometimes step into things that you don't feel necessarily. That's that's tricky stuff. Yeah, man. it honestly makes me so uncomfortable, and I think sometimes I kind of not bask in it unapologetically that's not the right word sometimes I'm just like I guess this is just the way things are and then I don't challenge it and then other times I'm just like no it's not how I feel I feel deeply uncomfortable about it but I I want to do this with community and if if I can use this as an opportunity to to really hammer in these points and to spotlight the work that some organizations like what Katie's doing for instance then I can make peace with it I think and yeah Katie and I are going to be working on some things in the summer which is really exciting and just want it to be accessible and open to folks. And yeah, if it's like a bit of a Trojan horse, then maybe I can make peace with it, but we'll see. We'll get there. Hey, as you say, nothing is fixed. We're always in flux. We're always learning. We're always adapting. We can't be in business all the time. I'm just parroting what you've already said to me. 100%. So true though. (laughs) We kind of, let's close it now. But before that, I guess I want to ask you, we ask at the end of every episode, where do you find hope? And if you could share like an action that people could take forward, like maybe how we might start to practice mm. um, collective care. What yeah. are the learnings from your book? Something that people can can do? Yeah. What gives me hope always is the change that I'm seeing in communities, whether that's people doing resilience circles, like what Casey's doing, whether it's my friends and comrades who are doing anti-fossil fuel projects and shutting down, you know, fossil fuel projects, whether it's people who are organizing around Green New Deal, whether it's people who are doing mutual aid in communities, whether it's people who are building digital networks and community like in Shadow. I do think there's so much to be said about the fact that community can literally mean anything. And I also really want to say that sometimes we kind of like, glamorize this word oh, community practice and I'm like sometimes it can just be being with your mates like truly they are your community think about it as in times of crisis who are you going to go to who's going to be there for you who do you break bread with who are the people that are going to help create the world that you want to see and for a lot of the time those are my friends they're the people that I consider my community my chosen family and so for me I would just say whatever people take from this conversation or from the book Find those people who hold you in your darkest days, but also hold you accountable in the most loving way and find a way to enact the change that you want to see in these little microcosmic groups that will eventually scale up with time. But I also, I do also want to give a shout out to the folks who are doing that frontline climate justice organizing. You know, I'm I'm part of a group called Stop Rosebank and they're campaigning to shut down the Rosebank oil field, which 
Grant Schnapps is trying to pass at the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. And I do make a point in my book that tackling eco-anxiety means tackling and ending all fossil fuel projects. So I do want to give them a shout out and say for folks who want to take that eco-anxiety to action, get involved. They're great people. They're kind people. And they're the kind of people that you you really feel in community with. Oh my gosh, yeah. there we have it. Hang out with your mates, support shutting down fossil fuel projects, whether you're in the UK or anywhere in the world. I'm sure there's there's a group that you can join who are doing yes. this work. So do those two things and you'll feel a bit mm-hmm. better, I think. Can you tell us when your book's coming out and when and how people can buy it? Yeah, so it's coming out July 6th and it's available online. For those who are based internationally, I think Blackwell's does free shipping. I learned this from my friend Michaela, which I was so gooped and gagged about because every single time someone from the US was like, how can I buy a book? I was like, I'm so sorry, you're going to have to wait until it gets right to the US. Now I know, Blackwell's does free international shipping. So yeah, and you can find it if you just type in, it's not just you, Tori, Troy, it should be the first hit, hopefully. There are a few other books called It's Not Just You about very different things. Maybe not entirely different. We'll link it. We'll uh, link it. In explore the at your own. <laughs> yeah. So there's no confusion. Say, explore at your own risk. <laughs> yes. So there you go. If people want to find it, that's where I'll be. Thank you so much, Tori, for gracing us with your knowledge today. I feel really like inspired. <laughs> um, and yeah, you're absolutely incredible. Next week, Larissa and I will be asking, why is health only human right if you're white? We're going to be talking about health injustice and looking at how, you know, the COVID pandemic, the impacts were so racialized. How did we get to this point? What's the history that got us there? And how do we build a health system for the future that really cares about all of us equally? And we're going to be talking about that next week. So Larissa will be joining me for that. But thank you so much, Tori. We'll make sure everyone buys your book and hopefully speak to you soon. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. If you've got thoughts, feelings, critiques, resource recommendations, all that good stuff, we really, really want to hear it. So defo comment on the Insta, shadow.mag, or hit us up on our new Gmail, shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to be really nice, you can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts or give us a nice little rating. And we would love you for that. Thank you.